preparing a live stream. And complicated. I haven't done Facebook in a long time. Yeah, well, it's automatically recording on Facebook. Okay. So we are live over there. That's good. We should be. If I press play, yes, we're live. Okay, I can close that. If you're on Facebook, by the way, I'm not going to. Um, I'm not going to monitor the comments. Okay. Um, I am going to mute everybody now. It's good to see you all, but I'm going to mute you all so that I can hear myself. I'm going to make one more bracha so you can answer. Amen. Thank you. So I learned that. Am I recording on the cloud? I forget. Um, anyway, it's good to see you. Thank you all for coming. I learned that if I record locally, that the quality of the video will be better. So my YouTube videos haven't been the best recently. Uh, the quality is not amazing, but it's great to see you all. And, uh, those of you who come in person, those of you who come on zoom, uh, one day I'd like to figure out how to get more people to come in person. Um, if you're telling me, uh, the cake, you're worried about eating the cake, maybe I'll have to have uh, cucumbers and uh, carrot sticks. That's what you want. Okay, so tonight's topic, as you may have seen, is about fire and brimstone. Uh, that's a famous line. Um, you know, speech sermons and speeches, a fire and brimstone speech in which the uh, rabbi or pastor gets up and describes all the terrible punishments that happen if you don't donate to the temple. I mean, sorry, if you don't do God's will and... You know, so there's, uh, the, you know, the fire and brimstone speeches. We, we know what they are. Hope you can all hear me okay. That's, that's working. Okay. Um, which brings the question, how does Judaism view it? Fire and brimstone is typically not a Jewish sermon, although it can be. How does Judaism view it? Do we view Judaism in that way? In that um, if things are going bad, that must mean there's... Uh, You've done something terrible. If you see bad in the world, that means they have done terrible things. Um, and if we don't hold that view, in other words, if we don't believe that every bad thing that happens is God's punishing, how do we understand all the verses that seem to point to punishment? So we will develop this idea and we will talk about it through the lens of certain ideas. So you're going to hold on to that idea till we get a little bit later. In other words, that's the basic question that we're coming to answer tonight are when bad things happen, are they due to punishment? Or can there be other considerations involved? And if there are other considerations, how do we understand the Torah? Um, I also wanna uh, go with my joke, of course, talking about punishment. What did the Floridian say when he got to hell? Wow, it's cool here. <laughs> okay, it's one way. Okay, how about the Floridians that can't handle the Florida heat? What did, what did, the, what did that Floridian say? It's a line you hear all the time. It's not the heat that bothers me, it's the humidity. Okay, anyways. <laughs> so, oh, hell is too humid. So, good evening, good evening. Oh, you made it. You made it. Hope you saved them some cake. Okay. Yeah, you, got, you got the book over there. So, um, huh? Or, oh no, he heard on the Zoom we were offering cucumbers and, and carrot yeah, sticks. That's why he came. <laughs> okay, so we're going to go off topic. Again, we're, we're, the ultimate goal is to discuss um, punishment, reward and punishment in Judaism. There you can see the people, or maybe you can. Actually, let me change the view on that. The reward and punishment. Um, however, we're going to di di digress over here. So, and the digression is actually going to go back to last week's Torah portion. And the reason why we're discussing this topic now, and I should really give that as a preface, why is this topic, why am I discussing this topic of punishment now? Because this is the time of year when in Judaism, we commemorate uh, what would look like as punishment. In um, uh, there's a, This time period is called the period of the three weeks. It starts on the 17th of Thomas. The first bad event to happen on the 17th of Thomas was the Jewish people serving the golden calf and Moses breaking the tablets. However, many, many other bad things happened on that day. And so from the day of the 17th of Thomas until the 9th of Av, which is the day the two temples were destroyed, we are in a semi-period of mourning. 
and we lament uh, our misdeeds that have caused uh, the terrible the situation that we're in where we don't have the holy temple. And uh, so therefore, it's a time of year when we tend to think about punishment. In fact, um, it says that during the nine days, which are coming up soon, that's, that's from the beginning of the month of Av until the ninth of Av, um, it's like a, a bad time for punishment. It's a time when bad things will happen. So it says if you have a court case or a surgery, uh, don't schedule it during that time. So again, this time of year is a time where it evokes in us these questions, the vengeful God, the fire and brimstone, and we're going to explore that. But first, we're going to explore, as always, you always answers a question with another question. So we're going to put that off to the side. And we are going to explore the last week's Torah portion because it will be very relevant to this discussion. So in last week's Torah portion, we had a prophet, but um, he was not a Jewish prophet. And not only that, he wasn't a nice prophet. In fact, some people called him non-prophet. No, I'm kidding. He was a prophet, a very good prophet. When I say good, I mean pretty, uh, pretty powerful, as we discussed in the class on Shabbat. However, he was not nice. He wasn't very nice. He wanted to curse the Jewish people. He was excited to curse the Jewish people. And he, at the bidding of a king called Balak, so again, Balak, Bilaam, it could twist your tongue, but Bilaam shows up at the bidding of Balak and he wants to curse the Jewish people. He tries three times, all three times he fails. And in the end, he only blesses the Jewish people. And ultimately he shows up and he gives up on cursing the Jewish people and eventually turns to the King Balak and he says, well, I can't really help you with the cursing, but I can tell you what's going to happen in the future. And here we come to our source number one of what we're going to read in the class. We're going to read what does he say is going to happen in the future. So I'm going to share the screen. And of course, if you have the booklet in front of you, you can just um... okay. You can just um... let's get rid of this on the side. Okay. Oh, fits page. No. Okay, whatever. Okay, so here's the text. Bilam said, and now I'm going to my people. Come and I will advise you what this people will do to your people then the days. And here are the important lines. I see it, but not now. I behold it, but not soon. A star has gone forth from Jacob, and a staff will arise from Israel, which will crush the princes of Moab and uproot all the sons of Seth. Anybody knows who Seth was? Last remaining, uh, son of Noah. Yes, so uh, Noah, no. Um, Adam, oh, Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, yes. Adam and Eve had Cain and Abel. Um, Cain so killed Abel. Abel uh, Cain got banished, and then they had Seth. Right, so Abel died. He had no kids. Cain had kids, but I, I don't know if his lineage lasted uh, due to a curse, but we are all the children of Seth, I'm, I'm pretty sure. Um, and he says, a ruler shall come out of Jacob and destroy the remnant of the city. So in other words, he's telling Balak, um, you know, you might win this round, but ultimately the Jews are going to win in the end. Of course, he didn't even win that round, but he's, he's telling him the future. And so but what is he talking about? He's talking about a future event. Now, we Jews have been around since the time that Bilaam spoke. Um, well, Bilaam spoke in the Jewish year of 2000. 488, 2,488. We are now in the year 5782. What's the quick math on that? How many years is that? 2488 to 5782? 3334. Yeah, about, about 3,300 years, a little uh, 3,300 3, plus years. It's, uh, I believe it's actually, yeah, yeah about 3,300 years. And uh, so we've been around for a while. So if there's a prophecy concerning the future, has that happened? And so all the commentaries say on this, when Bilaam said, I see it, but not, not, not now, I behold it, but not soon, he is actually referring to two different periods, two different time periods. Similarly, when he says a star has gone forth from Jacob and a staff will arise from Israel, he's talking about two different periods within Jewish history. There's actually two ways of looking at it, how you split the verse into two different periods of Jewish history. But regardless, it's referring to two different periods of U.S. history, two great leaders that will arise. One great leader is going to be King David. The second great leader will be the King Mashiach. 
So let's first start with King David. Um, what do you know about King David? He's got a cool city in Israel, right? Ear David, the city of David. He's got a nice little necklace. He was a, po he was a poet and a musician. Poet and musician. Mm -hmm. Okay, what else? He was imperfect. He was, he was imperfect. Yeah, he was flawed. Okay, okay. The whole thing with Bathsheba and all that stuff. So why is King David like such a central figure in Judaism? Like we, we sing David, Malachi, so you know, King David, the king of Israel is always alive. Like what, what was, like there were other kings, there were other prophets. Why is he so central in, in Judaism? Man said that God's own heart. What? A man said after God's own heart. Man after God's own heart. Okay. Yeah, well. Spirituality. The name beloved David means beloved, is doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Beloved of God or whatever. Did he did he unite the kingdoms, Rabbi? Mm. Yes. Mm -hmm. I was hoping you would talk longer so I could finish my piece of cake. Okay. Fundraising for the <laughs> uh, I'm he a did, man of few words. Ah, Jacob, yes, he did fundraising for the temple. That's why he's uh, he's a good fundraiser. <laughs> It's not all about money, just mostly. Okay. <laughs> okay. So the, the, the Jewish people, once they enter the land of Israel, if you actually read through the book of the prophets, they had a really, really rocky time. Uh, they weren't ever really fully united. Uh, the diverse tribes, if you even look the amount of time it took to conquer all the lands, it took a very long time. Even Joshua did not conquer all the lands. You have to wait till Joshua passes away. Then Caleb or Caleb takes over. Um, and uh, throughout the time, uh, to various degrees, the Jewish people had their enemies. And they would come and uh, do attacks on the Jewish people. And uh, they weren't really united. And they didn't have a united front and fighting back. And so if you read through the prophets, you'll see all different leaders that emerge in small periods of time. So you have the Samson's. You have the Gideons, uh, these leaders that emerge to save the Jewish people for a small period of time and unite, unite the people, but it's never really a, um, it's just, all right, you know, this is the person at the time. And um, eventually the Jewish people decided we need a king. It's too much, we're, we're, we're too separate. We have all these different tribes. We need one single king. And so they anoint King Saul, but that didn't work out very well. So ultimately, the real king, the first king who really led the Jewish people in a way that they had imagined was King David. So King David was really, if you could say, the first leader since Moses who united all the Jewish people and allowed them to conquer all their enemies, allowed them to vanquish all their enemies. And so he, he crushed Moab and he crushed the Philistines. So that's why King David is such a a powerful figure and force. He had both the spirituality, like Moses, and he also had the the, the leadership skills, uh, military, and uniting the Jewish people in a way that you know didn't even exist after that. King Solomon had it to an extent, but he was really living off of his father's legacy to an extent. Um, to the point, there's many stories. King Solomon, you know, the only way the doors of the temple opened was when he invoked King David. King David was God's beloved. And so when we want to go back and think of a time of a period we would like to live in, it would be King David. The only reason we don't say King David is because King David didn't actually build a temple. God told him he couldn't build a temple. Solomon built a temple. So it says Solomon was the most uh, peaceful time to ever be a Jew. They lived in the land. They reunited. They vanquished all their enemies. They lived under peace. But that was really all due to King David. It was King David's idea to build a temple. So King David is really the ultimate Jewish leader. However, as we know, that monarchy after King Solomon passed away, split up, and uh, throughout the next 400 years of the temple, that temple stood for 410 years that King Solomon built, uh, the Jews had varying degrees of peace, uh, sometimes more, sometimes less. And uh, as you can imagine, there were these two kingdoms, so they would war with each other themselves sometimes. So it's been a rocky road since then. And, and even when we built the second temple, we were always under foreign rule. So ultimately, where am I going with this is that's what makes King David the, the, the leader and a time that we aspire to look back to. However, we're told that King David was not the only one. And that's why Bilam says, I see it, 
but it's not now, meaning as Rashi says, it's sometime in the future. Ashurana Velokorov, I see it, but it's it's not near. And that's the King Mashiach. Even King David didn't bring the ultimate peace, of course. Now it was not the messianic time. And so what Bilam is saying is I see in the future two great leaders. One is King David, and the other one is going to be the King Mashiach. Now, this is one of the most clear um, verses in the Torah that point out to the Mashiach. When I say the Torah, right? The Torah is split up into the five books of Moses. And then there's the books of the prophets. The books of the prophets speak about the Messiah all the time. In the five books of Moses, there's only three hints towards the Mashiach. And this is one of them. So what have we established so far? We've established so far, again, we're putting aside our questions about the vengeful God and fire of brimstone. We're discussing a prophecy of Bilam. Bilam's prophesizing the Mashiach. And again, it says in the verse uh, where God says, um, I see it, but not now. That refers to King David. I behold it, but not soon. That refers to the Mashiach. Now, the interesting thing is that Rashi on this verse comments on one section. So Rashi says, um, Rashi says, I see it, but not now. He says, I see it. I see the prominence and greatness of Jacob, but it is not now, only at a later time. And so in other words, Rashi is coming to the uh, child and explaining that when Bilam said, I see it, but not now, he meant really, really far in the distant future. And if you think about it, from the time that Bilam gave that prophecy until, until uh, King David was a long time, it was close to um 400 years right we said we said the jewish people left they they entered Bilam's prophecy was in their last year in the desert which would be near 2488 and i have pulled up over here and king david came around in the year um but king david was appointed king in the year 2884 so that's about 400 years about 400 years um from that. So it was a long time. However, the second prophecy, unfortunately, uh, seems to be taking a much longer time. And the question is why? why? Why is the Mashiach taking so long? Any any thoughts why it's taking the Mashiach so long to come? We haven't earned it. Okay, well, let, let's put it this way. Let, let's let's, let's um, put it in other words. So the Jews... Um, entered the land of Israel. They were, you know, going around for 400 years. Then they built the first temple. Then because of their sin, the first temple was destroyed. How long did it take till they built the second temple? 70 years. 70 years. So that means their sins were bad enough that it took them 70 years till they could get it back. 70 years of punishment till they could get back the second temple. Now, this is not just me saying, this is actually uh, taken from the Torah, that the 70 years was corresponding to 70 Shemitah years that they did not keep. Everybody here knows what Shemitah is? Maybe, maybe not. Shemitah is every seven years in Israel, you have to leave the land. You cannot work the land. So every seven years, you cannot work the land, you have to leave the land and let it lay fallow. So every 50 years, we'll have... Seven Shemitah years and one Jubilee, right? So yeah. that's eight. What's eight times four? 320. Eight times four is 320? Oh, I'm sorry, 32. 32. <laughs> so how did they get to 70 years? I don't remember. Uh, well, you know, we could look inside. Um, let's take a look inside. You know what? We're talking about um, God punishing. Let's take a look at, at the verses which tell us that God punished the Jewish people, and therefore we know that it was 70 years. So it's going to be here in source number two. Let's take a look at source number two. Let me just move this out of the way. Source number two. Okay. I'm going to scroll down over here. So I, I want to recap what I've said so far, by the way. I want to recap. Basically, what I've said is Bilam prophesied about a, a future Mashiach. And 
he actually prophesies about two great redeemers. The first redeemer took only 400 years, but the second redeemer still has yet to come. And the question is, um, what's taking so long? So first we're going to study the first exile, the first punishment that the Jewish people had when the temple was destroyed. So we're going to take a look at text number two. This is from the Bible. And the Bible has a section in which God chastises the Jewish people very, very much. There are two sections of a bunch of curses. So here's one of them. It says in source number two, Bim lo tishmuli, if you do not listen to me and do not perform all of these commandments, and if you despise my statutes and reject my ordinances, not performing any of my commandments, thereby breaking my covenants. So it sounds like so far we're not doing the right thing, right? I will scatter you among the nations. I will unsheathe the sword after you. Your land will be desolate and your cities will be laid to waste. Then the land will be appeased regarding its sabbaticals during all the days that it remains desolate while you are in the land of your enemies. The land will rest and thus appease its sabbaticals. It will rest during all the days that it remains desolate, what, whatever it had not rested on your sabbaticals when you lived upon it. So what it's telling us, what God is telling us here in the Torah is, if you do not follow my commandments, then you will be kicked out of the land for the sabbaticals that you missed. So that would mean for every sabbatical you would miss, uh, we would be kicked out of the land for a year. And here we have, Rashi tells us, in uh, these two comments. In the first one, he's saying that um, we have to appease God for the anger of, of not keeping the sabbatical years. But he says in the second section, whatever it had not rested on your sabbaticals, this is on page 10, he says... The 70 years of the Babylonian exile correspond to the 70 sabbatical and jubilee years that transpired during the years that the Jew children of Israel angered God while in the land, a total of 430 years. Total of 430 years. So what's the math? Anybody knows? How do you get to the math? And Arashi explains, so 430 years. He's saying that's how long the Jewish people were not keeping the jubilee properly. So again, for every 50 years, there's... There's only eight, right? Right. So there's eight. Every, what I, did you, if the you're talking about Shemitah, it should be every seven. Shemitah years. and Yovel, right? Yeah. So Shemitah would be there would be seven. In in fifty years, there's seven Shemitahs. And one Yovel. And one Yovel. By the way, if I'm if I'm confusing you, this is part of the fun. That uh, there's so there's eight, right? So there's eight for every fifty years. So how many how many sections of fifty years are there in four hundred years? There's eight, right? So eight times eight. 64. Then in 30 years, I guess there's another another uh, another six, right? So again, for 430 years, we angered God. We didn't keep the Shemitah properly. How they know it's the 430 years is another discussion. So for 400 years, you have 64 Shemitah and counting the Yovels. And then in 30 years, you get another six. So uh, that gets to the 70 years. So basically what we're told is, again, this is Jewish tradition. You can find this everywhere. That because of our sins for 430 years, we were exiled for 70 years. And that should right away give you a question, which is, okay, all right, so the Jewish people sinned for 430 years, therefore they get an exile for 70 years. Now, how many years were the Jewish people in the second temple? Again, the 70 years of exile ended when they built the temple. How many years were the Jewish people in the second temple? Don't all answer out at once, but was it 490? No, but it had a four in the beginning. Anybody knows? How many years were they in the second temple? Anybody knows? Is it 430? It's not 430. 42. 40. Huh? No, 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 no. Four, 420. So but this is the easy way to remember, by the way. The first temple was 410, the second temple was 420. And then you go, they sent for 430 years, but that's another story. Okay, so 410 in the first temple, 420 in the second temple. Um, so the second temple stood a little bit longer than the first. So let's put it this way. They sent for 430 years. Therefore, they get 70 years of exile. Now, let's say all 420 years of the second temple they sinned. So at most, there should have been an exile of how many years? Let's, let's knock down a little bit, huh? 68 right 68 years of exile but yet this exile is now thousands of years long right 
So this exile has been going on for a while. When did the exile start? Was the temple destroyed? 72 CE. About 72 CE, yeah. So we're um, we're close to 2,000 years of exile. So what's going on? 1,030 or 1,000. Yeah, how many, how, how many Shemitahs were stuffed in the, just 420 years? Not only that, um, not only that, even if, on, on top of that, the amount of good deeds that have been done since the exile surely outweigh whatever the sins were. I mean, the amount of Jews that, that have lived since that time and have studied and have done, and have done good, how is it possible that, uh, you know, we have to believe that every generation is, is getting closer to Mashiach, right? So we've probably done something good in all our years. Uh, if we were getting worse and worse, there's no point in the exile, right? Uh, God does not want this uh, exile to go on forever. So what's going on here? Why is this exile going on forever? Why does it seem to be that... Um, it seems to be disconnected to the punishment aspect. Does that make sense? It seems to be excessively long. So the answer is that we have a precedent in Judaism where exile or a punishment is not necessarily related to being a punishment. And I'll say that again. So again, our question is, we understand all the commentators say the first exile is due to punishment. 420 years of sin gets you, uh, 430 years of sin gets you 20 years, 70 years of, of exile. And our question is, well, how come we're, 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 we're you know, it's been so, so long um, now that we're in exile, how, you know, how bad have we been? And to answer the question, we have to go back in history where Jews were in exile, not due to sin. Where would that be? During the time of the during the, the 12 tribes were in exile they were strangers in a strange land no? uh no they lived in the land of uh they lived in the land of israel they only lived i mean they moved to egypt eventually right so the answer is the egyptian exile the egyptian exile was not due to sin i'll say it again the egyptian exile was not due to sin okay um, first of all, we don't find any particular sin that caused their exile. Second of all, the exile of Egypt was prophesied before anybody did anything wrong. Where do we have that? We have in Genesis. In Genesis, there was a, a time called the covenant between the parts. God loved Abraham, and God wanted to do all types of goodies for Abraham, and one of those was he made a covenant with Abraham towards his children for many generations. And it tells this amazing description how Abraham took these pieces of, of a calf, split them in half, and that's the way people would make covenants. And he walked in between and he, so to speak, saw God walking through. Of course, he didn't see God, but there was, um, you know, a darkness and a, and a cloud and whatnot. Um, and at that point in time, God promised him that your children will be in exile. Let's take a look at this. This is source number three. So it'll be on page, well, I don't know what page you have over there. Um, source number three. Let's take a look. Page 10. So it says like this. Now the sun was ready to set, and a deep sleep fell upon Abram. This is before he was called Abraham. And behold, a fright, a great darkness was falling upon him. And God said to Abraham, you shall surely know that your seed will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. And they will enslave them and oppress them for 400 years. So here God is promising Abraham, before they've done anything wrong, they will be enslaved. And also the nation they will serve will I judge. And afterwards, they will go forth with great possessions. So God is telling him, guess what? I got, I got bad news and good news for you. The bad news is your children are going to be in exile. Good news is they're going to get money in the end. I don't know if that's worth it, but anyways... But you will come to your forefathers in peace and you'll be buried in good old age. And the fourth generation will turn here for the nuclear Emirates and not be completed until then. Okay, so God is telling Abraham that um, your children are going to go into an exile. And, but lucky for them, they're going to get riches at the end. I mean, uh, that's not a great promise. I'll imagine I would promise to you, hey, Jake, you are going to go to jail for 50 years. But afterwards... 
a lawsuit will come out and will turn on the jail to you for no reason. And uh, you'll get $20 million. It's not worth it, right? Don't think so. So what is God telling Abraham? He's telling him, guess what? Your kids are going to exile. It's like, it's one thing he said, your kids, you should know your kids are going to sin. They're going to go into exile, but don't worry. I will take them out. No, he doesn't say that. It's not a promise of I'll take them out, you know, despite their sin or whatever. He's just saying, hey, guess what? I'm going to put them in exile and I'll take them out and I'll give them riches. So what we see from here is that the exile is not necessarily a punishment. So here we have this next text. This is what the Rebbe says. We see from here that exile isn't necessarily a punishment. These were the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the tribes. And God forbid to say that they deserve the punishment of exile. Rather, the purpose was as God said himself, afterwards, they will go forth with great possessions. Indeed, this is what actually happened. And they borrowed from the Egyptian silver objects, golden objects, and they emptied Egypt. They took all the gold and silver out of Egypt, great possessions in literal sense, and certainly also spiritual great possessions, the rectification of the divine sparks. We actually see that the idea that the Jewish people had to take riches out with them was very important to God. God came to Moses and says, please, Tell the Jewish people to take out the riches, right? Now, if you were in Egypt, you would say, I'd rather leave earlier than, than gather all the riches. Right? Let me just get out. Um, but no, it was very important to God they take out the riches because that was actually the purpose of the exile. The Kabbalists teach that the reason we went to Egypt was there were holy sparks that we had to elevate that were trapped there in the land of Israel, that were trapped there in the land of Egypt. And through being there in the land of Egypt and doing what we did, we were, and taking their gold and silver, we were able to elevate so many of the sparks that were trapped there in the land. And that is how the Kabbalists view the exile of Egypt. Just one second, let me lower the AC in here. to freeze hell, hell the frozen hell right okay wait so you mean all those things that i said will never happen are now going to happen which things because if you have hell freezing then you know the expression when hell freezes oh when hell freezes yeah. over yeah 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 okay so are what you're saying is basically the exile in egypt was a vehicle for the jews to elevate the world Correct. So where I'm really going with this is when we see that someone has sinned, sorry, when we see somebody getting a certain type of punishment and you are a reader of the Torah and you would say, aha, I know why they're getting punished. If you don't listen to my statutes and you don't listen to my covenant, then uh, God will bring his wrath upon you. And it's very easy to say that. And it's very easy to say about ourselves too, when bad things happen in our lives, um, we can easily say it is obvious because I have sinned. With that logic and reasoning, by the way, that's a very scary logic because now you really have to look at, if you do that for anybody, then now you look at world events. So God forbid there's a war in Ukraine. You now have to come and say, well, it must be because the Ukrainians are terrible sinners. If there's an earthquake in uh, Thailand, you're going to have to come and say, well, it's because it, it, once you become the judge, once you, uh, so to speak, know what God does, right, then um, it's a very dangerous place to be. You're becoming the judge. I actually saw, I was researching before this class. I was curious. I, I saw, I don't know if I should say he's a rabbi, but there's a rabbi on YouTube who, who has this nice video just explaining that, well, he is a rabbi, but rabbis can be, well, I don't know what to say. Anyways, I, there was a person explaining that the Ukrainians now are being punished with a war because of what they did during the Holocaust. Now, how the heck does he know? That comes, and I'll tell you where it comes from. It comes from a view and a belief that any negative thing you see in the world is punishment for sin. Okay, and they say, why? How do I know? Well, you look at the Torah, it says you do wrong, you get punished. What we're trying to prove from here is that it's possible it's a punishment, but it's possible it's something else. And therefore, if you don't know, it's not up to you to say. 
we're presenting here one example where the Egyptian exile was not maybe partially, but definitely not entirely due to sin. Similarly, the exile now, the thousands and thousands of years, is not entirely due to sin because it's way, way too long. There are other considerations. And also, if you're going to go with that, like, I mean, look, everybody does everybody does good things and bad things. I mean, how are you going to figure out? I mean, uh, what, what's God going to do? I mean, you know, half the day zap you with lightning and half the day uh, give you candies. I mean, like, how does it work? Uh, I mean, we don't know how to judge reward and punishment either, you know? So uh, it can, you know, can you point out, well, you know, well, these people deserve punishment because they were doing these sins. Well, yeah, they were doing those sins, but they were also doing good deeds. And what about all these other people that I know that are also doing the same sins and are not getting earthquakes? I mean, like, it, it just becomes a, a thing. So really what I'm getting to is, and this really was the beginning question of the class, was um, when we see bad things, does that mean it's, it's God being vengeful? Does that mean it's God's wrath? Does that mean it's God's punishment? It's possible. It's also possible not. There's, there's other considerations that God has. God's plans are numerous. Um, it says that God, in a sense, really wanted Adam to send us for another discussion for another time, but uh, we discussed it once, I think, a year and a half ago. Um, so when we see bad things, we, don't, we, cannot we cannot come and judge because we don't know. We are not God, and we cannot play God. So back to our topic of exile over here. Um, one consideration of why the Jewish people had to go down to Egypt was because of an admission they had to accomplish over there. Similarly, in our exile right now, our exile has been very long because there's a mission that we have to accomplish in every single place. When you think about it, through this exile, we have been able to elevate so many areas of the world. In fact, um, and if you think about it, America has been the new frontier. It was a new, really, area for Jewish people only the last 100 years. It was really a new frontier for Judaism. Judaism had been throughout Europe and, and the Middle East and been all over all these countries for thousands of years. And finally, we have conquered, so to speak, America. And you can even say Australia. We're finally uh, getting also, you know, the, we're getting down under, you know, we're, get, we're getting down there. So... Is there an element of sin that caused our um, that caused our exile? Yes, but that's not the entire story. That's not the entire reason. That's not the entire thing that's going on. So does that mean that uh, therefore I can misbehave because uh, now I know that maybe we're in exile not because of my sin? Well, no. Well, the way we get out of out of exile is by completing our mission. So now you should be more motivated to complete your mission as Jewish people to elevate all the areas of the world, because through elevating all the areas of the world, um, we can uh, bring the redemption closer. Okay, summarize here. So we are dispersed across the face of the earth so we may come in contact with sparks of holiness that await redemption in every corner of the world. Correct. Yes, there are sparks of holiness all over the world, and that's our job and our mission to um, elevate all of those sparks. Would, would you say that um, that maybe that some people that have the biggest difficulties are given those difficulties because of their ability to transcend that so that they, you know, that the, almost like the stronger that you are, the more difficulties that you get because it's, you know, it's an, you're given the harder missions, so to speak. Um, it's possible. Again, all I've really presented is that there's multiple, I've just presented two possibilities of why bad things happen. That, that might be another option. I'm saying that there are other reasons why something bad might happen to somebody else. Um, which this goes back to, well, I, I would just back up a second. It's just an interesting question. If Judaism is not all about the reward and punishment, and it's hard for us to really know why does the Torah focused so much on the reward and the punishment, although it doesn't that much, but it mentions it a lot. And really it's the signing of value to the deeds that you do. That's really what it is. How would we know how important the deed is uh, when it tells us this, this mitzvah comes with this reward, this mitzvah comes with this punishment. For example, uh, honoring parents comes with a reward for long life. Does that mean that I will only honor my parents because of the reward of long life? No, but it, it makes me think now, oh, wow, honoring my parents comes with a reward of long life. What's so special about this commandment? 
what's so uh, unique about it and it makes us contemplate to think about it. Similarly, idolatry obviously comes with a very a terrible punishment. All of the rewards and punishment um, helps us assign a value. You know, when, when you're little kids, they work with reward and punishment, but as they get older, um, they should hopefully come to appreciate the importance of these items more. Um, a parent will freak out more when a child is doing something more dangerous, right? If you have a child doing something really dangerous, you're gonna freak out more. Now that should, now that child shouldn't grow up and think, well, so now I'm not going to do this dangerous thing because my parent freaks out um, and is going to punish me for trying to get into the pool. But they should appreciate the danger of it themselves. They should come to the appreciation of what's so wrong about it. So that's just a, a healthy way of looking at all the reward and punishment in the Torah. Is it's helping us assign a value to the things that we're doing. But now I want to tell an actual story. I want to tell a story that presents this idea. So lest you think it's just, uh, um, you know, my idea is that Maimonides has a fascinating letter called the letter regarding apostasy. So Maimonides lived, he started off in Spain and Spain had many golden years. However, the Almohads, which were Muslim fanatics, they conquered Spain and they were doing forced conversions. Either you convert or you leave. Now, Maimonides and his family happened to leave. However, many Jews decided to stay and they converted in public, but in private, they kept their own Jewish practices, similar to Murano's, but not exactly. And I'll tell you the difference. Um, first of all, uh, with uh, I, I, it wasn't illegal for them to do Jewish practices. They just also had to show up to the mosque. They had to read the Quran. And they had to espouse belief in Allah, which belief in Allah is not necessarily against Judaism. Allah is just another name of God. Christianity has more problems in its belief and, 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 and uh, a little farther divergent from our beliefs. Uh, nevertheless, uh, so there became this giant community of Jews who had been forcibly converted. Of course, they had the option to leave, but it was very difficult. You know, they, they tell the joke of, of the Jew in, um, in uh, Germany in 1935. And, uh, you know, as all the laws and that terrible laws are coming out and he decides he wants to leave. So he walks into the consulate in Germany or whatever. And uh, he says, I'd like to leave. So the German says, ah, oh, that sounds great. Another Jew to leave our country. Um, so the Jew, uh, you know, sees a globe sitting in this. He says, there, I'd like to go. There. I'd like to go to America. So the uh, German says, I'm sorry. The Americans, they filled their quotas of Jews for the year. You can't not take any more Jews. So how about Canada? No, they filled their quota for Jews. And he goes from country to country to country. And every country, they filled their quotas for Jews. As people, as we know, the, the countries all limited how many Jewish refugees were allowed to come in. So after the Jew goes to the whole globe, he turns to Germany and says, maybe there's another globe I could use. <laughs> so that's the unfortunate reality that we Jews have lived through many times. So the Jews in Spain, they, they saw it wasn't rosy elsewhere. And, you know, and it happened, actually. Jews who were in certain areas, and then they would move, and then the troubles would follow them. So some Jews just said, well, let me give up. I'll, I'll just officially convert and I'll live my, you know, I'll live my Jewish life. So there was a rabbi who came out and he wrote a scathing letter against um, these Jews. What a terrible, terrible letter against the Jews, uh, these Jews that had converted. And as you can imagine, they were very, very disheartened, uh, very distraught. And Maimonides wrote a lengthy, lengthy letter, first of all, explaining based on halakha, how these people uh, did not necessarily do the worst thing. Now he said, of course, if you give up your life for God's name and you didn't convert, that you would be blessed. But he explained how according to Jewish law, they, were, they did not necessarily have to give up their lives. And uh, second of all, he really went after this rabbi and he said, um, he basically said like, uh, you know, this rabbi is not, a, not really a rabbi. And uh, here he, um, here, let's take a look at uh, some of the things he says. And he really berates this rabbi. This is on uh, source number four. So he says, if such retribution was exacted from the pillars of the world, when they merely spoke few words against the Jewish people, and he's referring to when, when Moses spoke out against the Jewish people, so to speak, God got very upset at him, as we know. Um, he says, surely... How much more so a simpleton, so he's referring to this rabbi, a simpleton of the lowest regard who would dare lash out at Jewish communities to call them sinners and evildoers. 
So here we have Maimonides lashing out another rabbi. This rabbi is calling Jews sinners and evildoers. He says, who are you to call them sinners and evildoers? Even Moses, when he spoke badly against the Jewish people, God was upset at him. And, they, and, and the Jews were a little difficult, as we know. But nevertheless, he says, who are you to, to lash out against other Jewish people? And so we have to be very careful because this is a very common character trait to look at Jews and, 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 and describe, you know, especially in the more religious circles, it, it can happen. Uh, there's, there's an old joke, as it says, um, you know, every Jew believes that anybody who's more religious than him is a fanatic and anybody who's less religious than him is like a goy, right? It's like, I, I, I give a good example for this. It's like when you're driving on the road. If you're driving US 19, anybody who's driving faster than you is a maniac. And anybody driving slower than you is, is an alta cocker, right? So uh, we always have, you know, people have to be my level. I'm at the perfect level of uh, religiosity or driving or whatever it is. Um, so th th this has been a common theme, though, that many rabbis throughout the centuries have looked at the verses in the Torah and said, well, you know, we, we see these verses and uh, let's go out there and give those fire and brimstone speeches. Maimonides was not a fan. Again, there, there is a, a time and place for these things, but as a general rule, Maimonides was not a fan. Um, this was what made the Baal Shem Tov famous. The Baal Shem Tov lived in an era of very simple Jews. The Baal Shem Tov, the first Hasidic master, lived about 300 years ago. And during his time, there were these preachers that would go around from town to town, and they would preach about how bad the Jews were. And they would come there, and they would uh, tell, make the people cry, and then they would collect their money and leave the town, right? I mean, look, if you make people cry, it's a great speech, right? works every time it's emotional so they would collect their money and the Baal Shem Tov would would sometimes show up at these speeches and and talk back to the uh, preacher and ask him how could you dare speak against the Jewish people like this they tell the story I like this one is uh of Rabbi Shmuel Munkus you may have heard this one Rabbi Shmuel Munkus was um <clears throat> one time in a town and uh and uh, there was one of these preachers that had given this speech on Shabbos, the community about how terrible they were and how, what bad sinners. Uh, so Rabbi Shmuel Munkus shows up at that guy's hotel that night or whatever the house he was staying in. And he's standing there in the kitchen and he's sharpening some uh, big long knives. So the uh, rabbi comes out of his room, he hears the ruckus and he asks uh, Rabbi Munkus, he says, uh, what are you doing with these knives? He says, oh, these knives, um, ah, you don't need to know. He says, no, no, please tell me, what's the story with these knives? He says, all right, I'll tell you. He says, listen, we live in a small community over here. There are no righteous people buried here. And you know, um, before Rosh Hashanah, it's a custom to go to the burial place of a righteous person to ask God for forgiveness. And so me and the townspeople have figured that, uh, you know, we don't have righteous people here. And, and we typically don't have righteous people passing through our town. But uh, you graciously came to our town. And we thought... Um, you know, if we can bury you here, then we'll have somebody righteous buried here in this town and uh, we'll have a place to pray before Rosh Hashanah. So the uh, preacher looks at uh, Mr. Munkus, so he didn't know he's a rabbi, he says, uh, well, you know, I'm not so holy. One time I woke up late and I davened a little bit later than I should have. I'm not the perfect holy person. I don't think I, I'm your candidate. So Mr. Rabbi Monk says, oh my gosh, let me tell you, compared to these townspeople, and, and I heard your speech on Shabbos, compared to these townspeople, you are just, you know, head and shoulders above the rest of us. Yeah, you daven late ones, but you know what type of people we are. I mean, you spoke about us on Shabbos. I mean, we're, we're so much less, in our town, you're a tzaddik. So I says, well, you know, it wasn't just davening late one time, one time, I had uh, decided to watch a movie instead of studying Torah. It, uh, no, 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 you're still so holy in the conversation went back and forth and slowly but surely the confessions are coming out. They're coming out. They're coming, till finally, Rabbi Monkus says, you sinner, you dirty piece of, you know, C-R-A-P. What are you coming to this town with all these sins and telling all these townspeople how bad they are? Get out of town. You know, so um, it's sometimes what it is, is... Uh, it's so easy to uh, tell, berate people and tell people off, but are we really uh, that holy and are we really coming from this place of love or is it, um, you know, makes us feel good. It, it's always so easy to look down at others that are doing less than us, but uh, we're, we're not that holy. But um, I do want to bring two stories of the Talmud that 
uh, again, I'm, I'm just trying to prove the point that when bad things happen, it may be punishment and it may be not. And the reason why I'm telling you that is I'm, I'm, I can't take away what the Torah says. Of course not. But at the same time, we always have to remember there's so many considerations and we have to stop playing God. God's considerations are vast. And uh, we all know the dictum, he who saves the life as if he who saves the life as if he saves the world. So are you going to tell me that uh, someone who lived a very sinful life but saved 100 Jews during the Holocaust, you know, they're going straight to hell? You know, is that what you're going to tell me? I wouldn't believe it. Um, uh, you know, Mr. Schindler, um, he actually wasn't as a moral guy. If you look into his, uh, his, uh, I went to the Schindler Museum in Krakow once. It was interesting. I, I never knew that part about him. But uh, he saved lots of lives, you know. So we're going to read two stories in the Talmud. And the two stories present these two sides. One story in the Talmud is where something bad happened to someone. And the rabbi said, well, you probably did something wrong. And then the second story is the person didn't do anything wrong. So let's take a look here. Um, so again, I'm bringing you these sources. So you should know I'm not just giving you a nice theory that sounds good, but this is actually rooted in Jewish uh, teachings. So here's source number five. This is from the Talmud Brachot. So the Gemara relates another story regarding acknowledgement of justice of the divine punishment. 400 barrels of Rav Huna's wine fermented and turned into vinegar, causing him great financial loss. As you can imagine, wine is worth much more than vinegar. Rav Yehuda, the brother of Rav Salah, the pious, along with the sages, and some say Ravada Barav along with the sages, entered to visit him and said, the master should examine his actions as perhaps he committed transgression for which he is being punished. Rav Huna said to them, am I suspect in your eyes? Have I committed a transgression on account of which you advise me to examine my behavior? They said to him, is the Holy One, blessed be suspect that he exacts punishment without justice? Your loss was certainly just, and you must examine your conduct to find out why. The sages were aware of a flaw in Rav Huna's conduct to which they alluded. So here we have one text where seemingly the sages are saying something bad is happening in your life. Well, it's got to be you just think wrong because God can't be wrong. So if you're getting punished, something must be wrong in your life. However, Tosfos, oddly enough, says there that they didn't just come to him out of the blue. They actually knew of something that he had done wrong. And they were trying to awaken him to that uh, flaw that he had. But here, let's read another story. So that story almost makes it sound whenever you see something bad, well, you can't. God must be just. So bad, bad thing are happening must be your bad person. But we're going... But here's another source. So let's take a look at this. Rabbi Yehuda says that Rav says, when Moses ascended on high, he found the Holy One, blessed be he, sitting and tying crowns on the letters of the Torah. Moses said before God and master of the universe, who is preventing you from giving the Torah without these additions? So if you look in a Torah scroll and you look at the Hebrew letters, you'll see there's like little crowns, extra lines. Um, so God said to him, there is a man who is destined to be born after several generations, and Akiva ben Yosef is his name. So that's the famous Rabbi Akiva. He is destined to derive from each and every thorn of these crowns, mounds upon mounds of Jewish law. It is for his sake the crowns must be added to the letters of the Torah. So what God was telling him is the reason I'm adding the crowns to the Torah is because each one has a reason. And Rabbi Akiva is going to explain them. Moses returned and came before the Holy and Blessed He and said before him, Master of the Universe, you have a man as great as this, and yet you still choose to give the Torah through me. Why? God said to him, be silent. This intention arose before me. Moses said before God, master of the universe, you have shown me Rabbi Akiva's Torah. Now show me his reward. God said to him, return to where you were. Moses went back and saw that they were weighing Rabbi Akiva's flesh in a butcher shop as Rabbi Akiva was tortured to death by the Romans. Moses said before him, master of the universe, this is the Torah and this is its reward. God said to him, be silent. This intention arose before me. So we know that Rabbi Akiva was tortured to death. The Romans took his skin and flayed it off of him. It's a horrible, horrible death. And as you can see, then they waited in a butcher shop. And what's interesting in the story is God didn't defend himself like the rabbis defended him in the previous case. God could have said, do you suspect me of not doing justice? Right? And God could have said that, and like so Moses should have just assumed, okay, God must know some flaw that he did in his life, right? Moses didn't see his whole life, but no, God did not say, are you suspecting me of not committing justice? God said, be silent. This is, so to speak, my plan. He's not explaining. He's not saying it is punishment. He's not saying it's not punishment. He's saying this is the intention that arose before me. This is what I want to do. 
you know, if it was clear as day that there was something bad that he had done, that would be easy for God to tell, tell Moses. I mean, he's showing Moses everything. He could have just shown Moses, hey, guess what, Moses? Here, let's go back 30 years. Look at what Ray Kiva did on this and this year, on this and this date, and this and this time. That's why he's getting this horrible punishment. You see? I'm Mr. Justice. In fact, there's even a, 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 there's another story with Moses that another Medrash brings where Moses saw, God showed Moses a case uh, of, of uh, you know, so to speak, an innocent person being attacked and a guilty person being rewarded. And then God showed him the previous story of the reincarnation, you know, in the people's previous lives where it was flipped around. And that's why the story came out this way. So again, when God wants to show Moses how things work, he does. When he wanted some reward and punishment, he did. He didn't in this case, because not everything is about reward and punishment. Again, if God had reward and punishment over here, he could have showed him. And, um, and even if there is an element of reward and punishment, again, the point is we don't know. We have to be quiet. When, when um, Aaron's sons died, Aaron was quiet. Um, he didn't say, now, Moses gave some type of explanation, but Aaron was quiet and he's rewarded for it. So in summation, um, really the way we have to look at it is like this. When something bad happens in my life, whether it is due to my sin or not, it's always an opportunity to become better. Okay? Always, always an opportunity. Always we can be better people. Um, Dalt Rebbe writes to Santanya whenever you feel depressed or sad, even over worldly things, you know, your, your team lost the World Series or whatever it is, they lost no, the Stanley Cup. Your team lost the Stanley Cup and you're depressed about it. Use that uh, time to also be sad about godly things. You know, think about, well, I'm sad about the Stanley Cup and I'm also sad that I don't daven enough and I don't pray enough and I don't learn enough. Um, so when bad things happen to us, we can turn inward and say, well, I don't necessarily know all of God's plan, but I definitely can better my life. And bettering your life will always bring you better results. Not that much God promises. At the same time, when something bad happens to somebody else, we cannot jump in and decide to know exactly what the issue is. We cannot come there and say that I know why this and this bad thing is happening. Because God has some serious master plan. And you know what? By the way, you know, you know how people talk about like hidden blessings, you know, like when you have uh, a bad thing happen and then that, that thing brings good. So imagine you come to somebody whose bad thing happens to them and you say, oh, it's because God is punishing you. And then suddenly it turns out that that bad thing was actually the best thing that happened in their life. And you're looking like an idiot now, right? So, uh, you know, I, did, I didn't get accepted to uh, this college, but I got this. So again, um, how, how can we really think that we can play God? I mean, yes, the Torah says bad things will happen due to, uh, due to misdeeds. But when God does that and how he does it and how God weighs that against your merits, you know, can merits cancel out misdeeds 100%? So I cannot say for sure when somebody is experiencing something bad that is due to punishment. So for a rabbi to get up and say um, the Holocaust happened, which some had done, because, by the way, this, this, this is all based on the talk that the Rebbe gave in 1991 because there was a rabbi that got up and said that the Holocaust happened because of sins that Jews had done during that time. And the Rebbe gave this talk. And how, how can you say such a thing? How do you know? And really, anytime you're going to see something bad happening to somebody, you're going to walk in there and you're going to have the explanation. I mean, it's, it's the easiest thing. You say they sinned. Everybody sinned. I mean, it's the easiest thing to walk up and say, oh, you're being punished. You sinned, and you sinned, and you sinned, and you sinned. I mean, everybody has sinned but not everybody's experiencing the same uh, misfortunes. So how the heck am I to know um, what's going on? There's an amazing story of the Baal Shem Tov, and I'll end up with that. An amazing, amazing story of the Baal Shem Tov. Uh, actually, let me just read uh, the comments here before I finish up with this amazing story of the Baal Shem Tov. Um, it's very insightful. Those crowns of Torah used to be made with thorns. I keep us with iron to his skin. Okay, interesting. Could it be that those who don't uh, don't seem to get rewards in this world. Maybe they will have special reward in the world to come. Um, so ultimately, we do have a belief that God will, God is the ultimate judge and he will judge correctly. We have to believe that, we have to believe that God will give justice at some point. What is justice? I don't know. So when you're asking, 
uh, good people who don't seem to get rewarded in this world, but maybe they're not that good. Maybe they are, and they will get rewarded in the world to come. I have, I have no idea. But yes, we, ha- we do believe that ultimately justice will be served, whether in this world, the next world, or when the Mashiach comes. So here's an amazing story, which again brings out a bad thing that happened that was not necessarily due to a terrible sin. So the story goes like this. There was one time a couple that came to the Baal Shem Tov, and they wanted children. They didn't have any children, and it bothered them very much. And of course, the Baal Shem Tov being a miracle worker, they came and they begged, and every year they begged, 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 begged. Finally, one year, the Baal Shem Tov blesses them. In the next year, you will have a son. So Baruch Hashem, the wife gets pregnant, they have a baby, they come to the Baal Shem Tov to thank him so much, and they start raising this child. And um, I remember the second story, story within a story, but I'm pretty sure what happens is, is that at one point they bring this child to the Baal Shem Tov. I think the child died. The child died when he when he tasted bread. He like when they had bread and he just like died like that. And they came to the Baal Shem Tov and they came crying. They said, what type of cruelty is this? First, you have no children. Then you bless us with the joy of a child. And then you make this child die. What type of cruelness is that? You, you bless us with a child only to know that this child is going to die? How, how terrible is that? So the Bashanta says, let me tell you a story. It says there was once a, uh, a king. And this king had a son. And his son was brilliant. This child was just brilliant and brilliant. And he had teachers and teachers and teachers. And he would go through teacher after teacher after teacher. And even as a young child, he was running out of teachers that could teach his child because he was so smart. Really, a, you know, a once, once in a lifetime mind. And finally, the, the, so the king was scouring throughout his country and he found this one priest that was a brilliant mind and he brought him to the palace and he asked him if he could teach his son. And the priest said, yes, I will teach your son, but on one condition that I have one room in your palace in which I can lock myself up for one hour a day and nobody will disturb me. The king said, if you will teach my son, your wish will be granted. And so this priest came and he was teaching this uh, young child. And uh, the child really took the teacher and loved this teacher and, and really taught him brilliant ideas and thoughts. But as he became closer to his teacher, he started begging him and asking him, tell me, what do you do in that room every single day? I can't tell you. What do you do in that room? I can't tell you. But a young, smart child has both curiosity and, and uh, the desire to figure things out. He one day decided that he is going to figure it out. So he found a way to get into the room before his teacher locked himself in the room and he's hiding behind some curtains. And he sees suddenly this teacher pulls out this bag. He gets this little shawl, puts it around himself. He gets these little boxes with straps and starts putting them around himself. And the young boy cannot contain his curiosity anymore. And he jumps out and the teacher says, what is, what is this? What are you doing? He had no idea what a Jew was. And the teacher goes white. You know, he's, he's caught as a Jew. And uh, he's scared. And then, and then the young prince says, don't worry. Just please tell me what you're doing. I won't tell anybody. And so the priest told him how his history, I, for, I forget the exact history, the details of the story, why he was a hidden Jew. But he says, I'm Jewish. And these are the Jewish prayers. And, uh, and, and the young prince was fascinated and he said, please teach me your religion. He was fascinated. You know, this teacher, he was so close to teach me your religion. The teacher was obviously scared, but the prince threatened him. He says, well, if you don't teach me your religion, I'll tell my dad on you. So <laughs> he blackmailed him. So he started to teach him and he promised he wouldn't tell anybody. And this young prince loved Judaism. And there came a point where he turned to his teacher, the priest, and he says, listen, I want to convert and um, the, uh, the teacher said, well, you, know, you can't convert around here. If you try to convert around here, you'd be put to death. And so they devised this immense plan and, uh, where the, one of the prince would go hunting one day and he would uh, disappear. And of course, the prince disappeared to another country where he was able to get his um, conversion and he ultimately converted to Judaism. And I believe he lived out the rest of his life as a Jew. I'm forgetting the details. I didn't look up the story before. Either he lived out the rest of his life as a Jew or later he was caught and put to death. But I'm pretty sure he lived out the rest of his life as a Jew. It's a very famous story of the Baal Shem Tov. Huh? Either way, he would have lived out. Oh. 
Jew. Yeah, yeah, you're right, right. Either way, he lived the rest of his life as a Jew, right? right? Like Hollywood, what, uh, happily, happily ever after. It wasn't happily ever after. Anyways. What country was this? I don't remember. You can look up. It's a, it's a famous Baal Shem Tov story. You can find it if you Google it, I'm sure. So the Baal Shem Tov now turns to this couple and says, when this young prince passed away and he comes to heaven, the angels of glory come and say, look at this wonderful soul. He left riches. He left a life of comfort left being a king just for you, for God. And the angels, the accusing angels come and say, yes, he's so wonderful, so special, but how can we let him into the Garden of Eden and, and speak pearls of wisdom and Torah from his mouth when as a young child, he, he was drinking non-kosher milk from his mother and, and, and you know ate all this non-kosher milk. He has unclean lips. How can you give him such a lofty place with such uncleanliness inside of him. You know, if he was getting a regular place, but such a high place. And so finally the heavenly court decided, you know what, this kid deserves heaven. But in order to fully elevate his soul and allow him to fully experience the benefit of what he's done, we are going to send him to one special couple where he will live and, and, and eat and, and uh, nurse from a Jewish mother for the first years of his life. And after that, uh, he will pass away and come back to heaven. And the Balsamba turns to this couple and say, you were chosen to be the stewards of this wonderful soul and you should feel blessed that uh, you had this wonderful uh, child in your life so this is just a great example and i believe he then blessed them with another child but here's just another great example of here where something bad happened they had a child and the child died and the balsamto with his wisdom and knowledge and, and foresight was able to see the true story behind it and it was not a punishment at all in fact they were chosen because of how holy they were but we all are not the Balshamtov, and who are we to turn to people and tell them? If a tzaddik comes to you and tells you, you did something wrong or something, but who are we? There's so many considerations, and um, the real story is that uh, nobody should know any pain, and there should be no suffering. We should, we should be able to look at everybody with a good eye, and uh, if you see somebody that has any issues in their life, don't think about how bad they are. Think about how you can help them, and uh, maybe... As somebody said earlier, maybe they were chosen because they, they're the ones that can handle it. I, I don't know. I'm, I don't like saying that thing because I don't like anybody to have anything bad. But um, so let us all look at everybody with a good eye, have a positive outlook in everybody, have a good outlook. And yes, Torah speaks about reward and punishment, but we are not God. We just know what we have to do. We have to each and every single one of us try and better our lives, try and help the people around us. As it says in, in uh, the ethics of our fathers, Anan Pali Anan, we are just day workers. We work for God, we're employees. We're not responsible for the job, but we, we, we have to work every single day. So that's what we have to do. Do our part and let God be God. So we don't have to play God. So thank you so much for coming. And uh, I am going to stop the recording. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you very much, Rabbi. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming. Thank you, Rabbi. Oh, nice.